This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the all music books podcast where we speak with authors of music books, bios, history, criticism, cultural takes, and everything in between. I'm your host, Steve J. Today's guest is Mike Hippel, who wrote the book Lived Through That, 90s Musicians Today. Welcome, Mike. Thanks for having me, Steve. So you have a brand new book out, and as I mentioned, it's called Lived Through That, 90s Musicians Today. You're a photographer, but this is more than just a book of musician photos. Tell us about the concept of the book and how you came up with that. It's a kind of a little bit of a longer story, but I'll try and make it quick. <laughs> so um, back when my daughter was born in 2008, um, you know, when you first have a kid, you're like in, in this little world and you don't really get out of that bubble very much. At a certain point, you just need a kind of creative outlet to do something, right? So I started reaching out to artists and architects and uh, some musicians as well to create this thing called The Creatives Project, which I at some point had envisioned as being a book as well. And I pitched that book out to the world and you know, nobody really bit on it, but somebody, one of the publishers, pu pulled aside a picture of Dave Wakeling from The English Beat and said, why don't you do a book on 80s musicians? And uh, I was like, yeah, that'd be great, but I don't, really, I don't really know any 80s musicians really, you know? So um, I just kind of filed that in the back of my head. And, uh, you know, a couple of weeks later, I got a phone call from Valerie from the 80s band uh, New Shoes. I'm up here in Seattle, Washington, and they're down in Portland. She said that they were getting their band back together to do some, some of those 80s tours kind of thing. Uh, and would I come down to Portland and do their band photos? Because I am a, a photographer as well. Obviously, that's my job. And uh, I said, yeah, of course. And then I'm like, but can you maybe, can I do a couple shots of you just for my book for this, this other thing? And she's like, oh, of course. So I got down, I went down to Portland, I, I photographed them and, and the band, and we were talking and having a good conversation. We got along really great. And it turns out that, that Portland is like a little hotbed of 80s musicians, like Martha Davis from The Motels, Tommy Two-Tone, Bill Wadhams from Animotion. And she kind of hooked me up with some of those bands. And then from there, that 80s book kind of took off and I started getting more and more artists on board. Funnily enough, the first person who told me to do the 80s book actually turned that book down. But, uh, <laughs> but eventually found a home, found a publisher. And then obviously once the 80s book was done, it was, you know, the 90s was the logical follow-up. So, and for me, like I was a big music nerd anyway, so it was very exciting to do all this. It ended up being right in my wheelhouse, what happened. So I have to ask, is the title of the 90s book, Lived Through That, is that a riff or a response to the whole album title? 
Yes, it actually is. Um, it was not my initial idea. <laughs> uh, it was the publisher's idea. The first book, the 80s one, was called 80s Redux. And when I was doing the 90s one, I just had it in my head that the title of the 90s one was going to be 90s Redux. I switched publishers for the 90s book, and they, their marketing folks thought that the word Redux sounded very old-fashioned. <laughs> they didn't really like it. And I, I, I will be honest, I did give a lot of pushback on it. I was very wedded to the idea of 90s Redux. Um, but we had a lot of good conversation. And I really like it now. And it actually works really well with the theme of the book. It took me a while to get there. But yes, I did. And I, I was definitely concerned for legal reasons, too. <laughs> but That's interesting. I, I like it, too. But it took me a minute. You know, I, I think I got through the whole book. And then I said, is that a response to the whole? So <laughs> anyway, um, let me ask you this. Uh, so you mentioned your 80s book. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, what did you learn maybe or apply to the new book? I mean, was it, um, you know, modified at all the way that you went about it? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, the biggest thing that I learned from doing the 80s book to the 90s book uh, and that I incorporated in the 90s book was when I would talk about the 80s book, people would be like flipping through the table of contents or whatever and say, oh, I don't know any of these bands. And in my head, I'm like, you totally know these bands. I would give a couple song titles to them and then they'd be like, oh yeah, I remember them now, okay. So in the 90s book, I wanted to include some of those song titles in there as well. Uh, and also just kind of to evangelize about some of the bands. And if you like this song, maybe you'll like these other ones and go deeper into their catalog. And to kind of, kind of give the, the reader like a jump, like a playlist, like a Spotify playlist, but on paper. And a good jumping off point to, to kind of explore some of these bands. Uh, and also just, to, you know, that having the hit songs, some deep cuts, uh, songs they should know kind of things. I, I just feel like giving some of those song titles triggers the, the memory of those songs and those artists in their heads as well. Yeah, and I found it helpful because, as you mentioned with parenting, you know, I was a parent, a new parent in the 90s. So I know most of the big names, but there was definitely some new people for me that I've explored since due to that. Uh, I picked up on that right away with the songs and would go listen to those songs. So both books feature a forward by Dave Holmes, not by you. I was expecting you. And in this one, at least, it's it's not about your book, really, but more of an abstraction of the time and the music and where it leads and led. So tell us about Dave Holmes and what, if anything, you asked from him for the forward. Yeah, so I really admire Dave and his style of writing. He's done a lot of work with Esquire. He was obviously an MTV VJ, so he's got the music connection as well. Uh, and he had written a book also called Party of One. It's a very emotional book about coming out and coming of age. And also with a huge music tie-in and how important music is to him and, and his life. So all of those things combined, he was my number one choice to do the forward for the 80s book. The forward for the 80s book is, is really great. And it's, again, it's not, it doesn't necessarily, it ties in some of the artists, but it's more about the feeling of, you know, being an outsider teen in the 80s and, you know, being an angsty kid in the 90s. You know, Dave is so great. I just kind of asked him, I was very happily surprised when he said yes. And uh, I just let him go with it. I, I asked him because I really enjoy what he does and how he writes. And I knew that he would do a perfect job. And on both both cases, when he would hand out, he handed over the forward to me and he'd be like, what kind of notes do you have for me on this? And I'm like, God, I, I have no notes. <laughs> this is so perfect. Like it really, it just gives a good vibe for for set, a good setting for the book to, to start with. So yeah, it sets it up well, especially when we get into, you know, what some of the artists have to say. It, it's very unique. And when I was reading it, I, I wasn't sure I understood it, but as I went through the book, it made sense, you know, looking back and, and that kind yeah. of thing. And, and, you know, the importance of music, I think to a lot of us anyway, 
I do have to say my, my favorite line in that though is uh, the music of the nineties. Holmes says simply, we toppled something oppressive, Motley Crue. And I, <laughs> I, I laughed out loud when I read that. I thought that was great. Yeah. He has a, a line in the eighties one too, that I thought you'd like. It said, sure. The cool crowd had their Van Halen and their Bon Jovi and that's all fine. But it, did it inspire them to do anything but drink beer and have sex? <laughs> I thought you would appreciate that one too. That's pretty good. So what was the process in choosing subjects for the book? You kind of mentioned it, that you went on a shoot and and that person kind of led you to other people. But did you cast a, a wide net? Were they people that you really liked as a band or did you aim for the big ones? I know you include some that are lesser known. How did that work? Yeah, so I definitely had a jumping off point that I had to like the artist. I couldn't see myself shooting Motley Crue, for example. So, you know, music that I didn't really get into at the time, and they are very personal books. So I wanted them to be kind of the jumping off point being a band that I had, I liked. Uh, It just so happened that, you know, I did like New Shoes and all the bands that she had introduced me to. So that was, that was great. Uh, But yeah, I do, I did did start off with kind of a wish list of stuff uh, and go from there. Uh, For each book, for both the 80s and the 90s book, you know, I probably reached out to about 300 different people. And in each book, there's about 45 artists. So you can see what my hit rate is there. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I was very pleased on, on most of the people that, on all of the people that, that, that said yes to the book. When I sat down after the 80s book came out, you know, the 90s one, I was like, okay, well, I can't do a 90s book unless I get the Sundays in there. Because I really wanted to get the Sundays in there. And if you look through the book, the, the Sundays are not in there. So, you know, there were definitely some bands that I, I really wanted it to get in there. And for whatever reason, they said no, or we didn't get, I didn't get a response or, you know, finding contact information and so on and so forth. Uh, shame on them. Uh, cold calls are <laughs> difficult, I guess, uh, in something like that. Because like, as you mentioned, it is very personal. But, you know, it's a very wide representation of artists. And what was your strategy for photo selection after you shot them? And, and I wonder if the artists had any input. Yeah, so I definitely tried to like let the artists see all of the images and we would have a discussion about it. My approach to, to portraiture is definitely collaboration. So even when we're when we're working together, it's a collaboration. And after the fact, it's kind of a collaboration too. So I definitely wanted their input on it. And as being the, the initial photo editor on the project, sometimes other people see things that I don't see or... I'm really married to an image and it may not be the strongest image <laughs> in the batch. And I'm not too proud to, to say, you know what, you're right. That's, that is actually a better picture and that's going to make this book better. So the artist definitely had a little bit of an input in there. And also the designer of the book had a big input as well. Her name is Alison Klein. And she would put some pictures in there that'd be like, oh, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have expected that. Because she, she would see like the small, the small edit, and then from there, kind of what worked best in the end, uh, in the flow of the book and the design of the pages, and I, and there were definitely some surprises. I'm like, oh yeah, that's that's a that's a better choice hmm. than what I would have made, and I'm not too proud to, you know, I I definitely have some strong opinions, and and definitely fought for a couple of ones that I thought deserved to be in there. But if if somebody made a better choice and it worked for the book, it, I would definitely go with that. I'm curious, did you shoot this digitally? So yes, I did shoot. Most of it digitally. Uh, the 80s book was all digital. On the 90s book, on some of the artists, I definitely had a little bit more time to work with them. And I had an old speed graphic camera. It's a four by five camera from the 1930s. And I, and I hadn't pulled it out in a long time. And I thought, you know what? Some of these artists, their vibe and their aesthetic would go really well with the aesthetic that this camera does. So there's about four or five different artists in there that I shot on that camera. And they turned out really well. I, 
I wanted to use this old school, this, this might be getting a little too technical, but this old Polaroid film that they don't make anymore. It's a four by five black and white film that, that pulls apart and it also has a negative included with it. I really wanted to use that. They don't make it anymore. Uh, so I'd have to scour eBay and spend a ton of money on getting that film. But, uh, and then sometimes it would come and like the emulsion would be dried up. So it would be totally worthless and I would have just wasted a hundred bucks. But, you know, I can't blame the seller on that kind of stuff because you have no idea until you actually open the film and start working with it, uh, if it's going to work or not. And that's a very unique look, that film, you know, as a, as an art director at a couple of labels, I worked with a lot of photographers and I remember people using that and pulling it apart. And it was just such a cool thing to watch for them, you know, right there. And, and usually, since that film was so expensive, too, I would have like three or four frames basically to shoot that in. And so, on some of the artists, it just didn't work. Um, like Rob Zabrecki's, I really had this idea in my head going in that uh, I wanted to use that camera, that he was a great subject matter for that. But it just didn't look as good as what I shot on digital as well. So it's a very individual kind of thing. And, and I want it to work really badly, but sometimes it just doesn't come together that way, that there's a better choice. And... You know, I don't want to use the four by five camera as a gimmick. I want it to like feel organic with the subject matter. Uh, most of the times it worked great. And the idea that I went in with kind of worked, but like with Rob Zabrecki, it just didn't cut it. You're listening to All Music Podcasts, a member of Pantheon Media. We're speaking with Mike Hipple. He's the author and photographer on the new book, Lived Through That, 90s Musicians Today. I found the settings of a lot of your shoots really interesting. And I know that you traveled to shoot some. And was it up to the artist to suggest places in town that you may not know of? Was it collaborative or, or just plain luck? Because some seem like maybe their homes or their studios. And then there's definitely a lot of really cool pictures out in the real world, for lack of a better word. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of a combination of those three things. Um, I would reach out to them. Most often, they would want me to meet at their homes, which is great. I mean, if they trust me enough to come to their house, that's fantastic. But I'm going into an environment that's completely foreign to me. I don't know what's there. I don't know what I can do to make it work. Uh, I usually try and uh, you know, get to the sets a little bit early. Obviously, it's their home, so I can't go into their homes early. But I'll look around the neighborhood. I'll walk around, drive around if it's something I can do. But most of the times, it's just I get there and I have to like figure it out on the fly with the artist there, you know. Uh, sometimes it's a little stressful if you're under a limited amount of time. But like I said, most of these people, if they're letting me into their homes, they are definitely very open to, you know, hanging out and getting the photo right. There are some artists that, like Mickey Bereni from Lush, I went to London to photograph her. She lives in London, but at the time that I was going to be there, she was down in Brighton which is about an hour south on the train. Uh, so she's like, can we just shoot in Brighton somewhere? So I'm, I'm like, sure, of course. I get there. I got there like an hour and a half early. No, two hours early. And I'd already, before I, I went, I'd already looked at the, the weather reports and I was seeing that the weather was going to be a little iffy at the time. So it's like, oh, maybe I can't shoot uh, outdoors, right? So I tried looking at studios to rent or hotels to shoot at. No dice. There was like a film festival in town or something the weekend that I was there. So they were all booked. So I was freaking out a little bit. So I'm like, okay, I'm just going to have to wing this when I get there and hope for the best. And as I got there, it was like super bright sun for one minute. And then the clouds would come in and it would be super windy because it's on the coast. And it's like, God, this is not going to work. What am I supposed to do? And uh, so I'm just walking around and walking around and I see this open door on this building. And I just was like, what's, what's in this building? It looks kind of intriguing to me. So I, I walk in. And all of a sudden, this alarm goes off, right? It's like, wah, wah, wah. And uh, 
It's like, you know, you will, the security guard will come in like five seconds to arrest you uh, if you do not escape this building. And I'm like, okay, well, I've been looking around and it's like this interior building that looks like a hotel lobby from like 1930 with this gorgeous wallpaper and it's really beautiful and it's so perfect. And I'm like, I'm just going to wait here for the security guard to come <laughs> and ask permission. Nobody ever showed up. I wow. left the building. I come back in, set the alarm off again, wait, nothing. I did this like three times and nobody showed up. So I'm like, all right, well, we're going to have to shoot here. I'm going to have to explain to her that this alarm is going to be going <laughs> off while we're doing this because, you know, obviously nobody is here and it was a great location. So I went, I met her, we walked over there and there's this big jolly guy like standing at the doorway and I'm like, oh no, and now he's going to say no. And I told him what I want to do and he's like, sure, just go on in. And it was, it was the best. It was so oh. exciting. I was very excited to, to have that opportunity to use that space. That's a great story. I'm going to, I'm going to definitely have to go back and look at that picture and, uh, and see that. What, if anything, determined how many images an artist got? Because it varies. You know, there's some that only have one image. There's some with three or four, a couple pages worth. So how did you determine that? So in the beginning, I would definitely try and get like at least two or three setups so that we had the option of trying to fit in a couple of different pages. Ideally, I would have liked every artist to have a couple of different pages. Uh, sometimes it didn't work just because of we had a finite page count that we had to work with within all these other variables that were happening. Uh, and then also, you know, sometimes I, you know, there was one artist in particular that I just got a little starstruck with and I only did one setup and that was Tanya Donnelly from Belly. And uh, she's a, an absolute favorite of mine and she was so fantastic to work with. And I had this one setup that I'd already figured out. And I shot it and I had a couple of uh, other ideas in my head, but I was just, I did, I did get nervous. I just, I got a little nervous and I'm like, okay, well, let's just go and have our conversation now. And even as we're doing the interview part, I was thinking to myself, God, I didn't shoot enough. I didn't shoot enough. Cause I definitely wanted more pages for her. Right. Particularly in the end when the designer's laying it out and I'm like, oh yeah, we need another, we need another spread for Tanya. And I was looking at the photos and I'm like, crap, they're all, they all look, we can't, <laughs> like, there's no way that we can get another a different photo to, to go on that double page spread. Um, so I was totally kicking myself. But most of the time we had two or three setups to work with. I kind of let the designer go with what needed to be done on that part. And like I said, sometimes I would come back and say, you know, I really think this artist needs another page. Let's try and stick this in there. Used to see her walking to the public library with her kids here in the town that we live in right outside of Boston, which Boston's well represented in your book. Yes, there's a lot of great Boston artists from the 90s. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, I wanted to, you know, shift gears a little bit because one of the really unique things, you're a great photographer. The portraits are really, really nice. But to me, the more unusual bit is these personal reflections. And some of them are just amazing and some of them are funny, as you say. And some of them are, you know, this is where I am in my life. So how did you get the ball rolling on these questions? Was there like a baseline question that you asked everyone and, and you just recorded how they responded the initial thrust was like what are you doing now you know like that what are, what are we doing now and we would start from there and just kind of riff from that I don't really go into the interviews necessarily with like a huge list of questions like with Tanya I knew that she had gone and done some some work as a doula or Rob Zabrecki from Possum Dixon I knew that he had a journey like how do you how did you make some of these transitions and uh, I was interested in some of those things so I would come in with like a loose story but I definitely wanted the artist to kind of fill in a lot of those blanks on that. The main goal of doing the book is that uh, it seems to me that in our society, a lot of 
a lot of times you're only valuable creatively when you're in your 20s. Mm. And as you get older, you're no longer seen as like a viable creative individual. And I just wanted to, to kind of underscore that while these people may not have, you know, top 10 hits on the radio anymore, they're still incredibly creative. They're doing amazing things. Uh, their career just didn't stop at this zenith of chart success or whatever, that they've continued on to do really great things. And maybe you should definitely kind of look at what they're doing these days. And it was often very easy to get these stories because these are all amazingly talented people. As one famous musician once sang, life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. And, <laughs> you know, it's funny because there's an underpinning about family and starting a family. And with musicians, that's probably the furthest thing from their minds when they're that young and, and playing live out every night. And many of the women address this from Tracy Bonham, who I did the album cover for, to Tanya Donnelly, Sarah Shannon of Velocity Girl. And they all had very compelling stories about that journey. Yeah. Yeah. And so some of the men did too, right? Like, like they take time off, you know, you, you've had this amount of success and you are rewarded with a certain amount of time that you can spend, you know, with your family. And these are the things that are important to them. And I don't know if this is a kind of our generational thing, because being raised in the seventies was a, a much different experience. A lot of the artists, when they started families, they wanted to have quality time with their families. And that didn't, it didn't make a difference if they put a pause on their career or like Chris Ballou from Presidents of the United States of America doing children's music. And some of the other artists that you had just mentioned too, they did some, some children's music. It was very wild for me uh, when we had our kid to go to, you know, Casper Baby Pants, which was Chris Ballou's side gig as a, as a children's artist. And I was like, oh my gosh, I was rocking out to his shows when I was 27. And here my <laughs> three-year-old is rocking out to him. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Definitely. It was very, it's very surreal. Chris Ballou's story is probably one of my favorite because it's just so cool what he did. Just like you said, very creative and, and, you know, fulfills probably a lot of what, you know, he wants to do you know, without giving up the family. Yeah. Yeah. He's a, he's a really great guy. Uh, unfortunately, or, or fortunately for him or unfortunately for us, uh, he stopped doing the Casper baby pants stuff like this month, I think, or just, just very recently. Uh, he did 19 albums, 19 children's albums. And now he's going back to doing some more adult-oriented material. Though the great, the great thing about these artists that are doing the children's music is that it was definitely super tolerable for the adults too, right? Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, little baby shark or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I took my kids to Dan Zane's quite a few times when he did some of that stuff of the Del Fuegos, which is probably slightly more 80s. Yeah. You know, another recurring topic is, you know, the instability and pressures of the music business. And you mentioned that, you know, that a lot of people out of their 20s, they're done or, you know, off the charts anyway. But David Lowry of Cracker and Camper Van Beethoven, Kay Hanley of Letters to Cleo and, and Chris Novacellic of Nirvana have worked really hard to contribute to artist rights and copyrights and, and streaming services. And that's that's very interesting, I thought. Yeah, it's a... Uh... Unfortunately, that was a big thread with the artists, both from the 80s book and the 90s book, is the fact that you can't make money from music anymore. And it's fantastic that people like Kay and David Lowry are out there fighting for artist rights and to get a bigger piece of that pie, because it is absurd to me that some of these people are making fractions of a penny per stream for work that they created. And it just seems that creative work is being taken for granted and just being given away for free and seen as something that is easy. So why, you know, why wouldn't you just want to give that away? It's a very challenging market for any art form, really, at this particular juncture. What's also interesting is that other folks that you talk with, they kind of went the other direction, you know, 
uh, they reinvented themselves within the music and branched into other art forms like April March or, or Kurt Reisky. Yeah, from Ultra Vivid Team. And Yuka Honda, their their journeys have been really incredible. Yeah, I mean, like people like Yuka uh, and April March, they're still working within music, right? Just maybe different forms of music than we're used to hearing them do. Uh, but people like Kurt, he does music as well, but... You know, it was really surprising to me that because I loved his work with Ultra Vivid Scene back in the in the day and that he kind of looks back on that and thinks that, well, that wasn't very good. That was just silly pop music. But now he's a professor uh, and he's a very well uh, regarded video artist, which was pretty Im- impressive to me. Uh, and some of the other folks, too, like John Hall from uh, King Missile, you know, he went into law, uh, Rob Zabrecki becoming a magician. Um, you know, some of these folks are definitely turning away from music. Maybe not out of choice necessarily, but just uh, just for because of what we were just saying, that the, the industry is so difficult to actually generate income for a living. Unless you're touring all the time. It's become a touring and merch thing, and the yeah. music hardly matters, which is a shame. Yeah, yeah. We're speaking with Mike Hipple, who is the photographer and writer of a new book called Lived Through That, 90s Musicians Today. The pandemic, of course, has disrupted the music business intensely as well, as it did the whole world. And I'd be remiss if I if I didn't have you mention Fountain of Wayne's Adam Schlesinger. Yeah, um, that was a that was a hard one. Uh, I really badly wanted him in the book just because he was in a couple of my favorite bands from the from the era, like Ivy and Fountains of Wayne, and he's just such a talented, amazing guy. And we went back and forth trying to, to nail a day. Like I, I thought he was in New York and then he wasn't in New York. He was in LA. And so we were having, we went back and forth a lot, a lot. Uh, and in November of 2019, we finally were both in LA uh, and I got to spend the, the afternoon with him. Uh, and it was, it was amazing. He's a super generous guy with his time. And uh, uh, it was great watching him kind of rehearse for the day. A lot of times on these photo shoots, I'll be waiting around or something. And that was one of those days where it was like I was waiting around for about a couple of hours while he was uh, setting up doing sound check and so on and so forth. And it was great to watch him work, right? It's a good way to, to introduce yourself to the artist. And I was really, really happy with the photos. Really glad that it worked out. Uh, and then at the beginning of the pandemic, I was just shocked that he was one of the those first bigger names to to succumb to the disease. And like I said, I had a couple of phone calls with him and and spent an afternoon with him, but it really upset me at the time. It was like, it really drove home, I think, to a lot of us uh, that were paying attention that, you know, this is kind of a a big deal. Like he was a healthy, healthy guy. He was our age. He was, you know, and here he was, you know, gone, gone way too soon. You know, I had already had it written, his, those pages written. And and before we went to press, we had to, to rewrite all that stuff. Yeah, I was definitely shocked. Uh, our last podcast was on a power pop book, and uh, the author is a huge Fountain of Wayne fan, and that never came up. And when I saw that, because I read your book afterwards, um, I was like, "Wow!" And and early, you're right, very early on in the in the pandemic. So yeah, um, I'm wondering if any of the artists have reached out to you uh, with their thoughts about the book, because you know, after talking to you about it and your approach and and some of these things, I, I think it is you know, sort of one of those legacy books in terms of the artist and where they were and where they are, maybe? Yeah. Um, as a creator, I get very nervous and I'm very self-conscious <laughs> about whether or not, and and scared. I want I want these artists to like what we've done. I want, I want readers to like what we've done. And I've gotten a lot of really great feedback from the artists. 
I did a like a, a maker's fair here in Seattle uh, just before Christmas, and lots of people wanted to come up and flip through the books and tell me about their stories about uh, you know seeing these bands or whatever. Most of the people, this was here in Seattle, and most of them were <laughs> saying talking about Chris Ballou and and what I had just said about seeing him in the '90s and then taking their kids to them mm-hmm. in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. So and or that they went to preschool with their, <laughs> their kids or whatnot. People seem to be really connecting with it. That audience seems to be connecting with it. I get very excited when when I get an email from one of the artists saying that they enjoyed the book. I think most of the artists have their copies at this point. But yeah, it's it's great. Or it's great when I get a random tweet uh, that I'm tagged and that somebody says that they liked it. It makes me feel good. It makes me feel like I did the right thing. It should. And you did. And to that point, another of my favorite quotes, which kind of speaks to really this whole conversation is from Bratmobile's Alison Wolfs. And what she said was, quote, you should always have a creative outlet until you die. I don't think there's any time you should hang it up. And, you know, that to me seems incredibly applicable to the men and women in your book. Yes, that's she sums it up perfectly with that, right? Like, that's exactly what I'm trying to say with this book. If you feel a creative urge, do it. Just get out there, do what you do. It's still great, you know, like like I was saying, you know, these are still super creative people. It, it's great to see what they're doing. And I think people should be aware of what they're doing these days, too. Absolutely. And to that end, uh, you have a dedicated podcast for this book. Yes. Uh, how did that come about? Uh, I am a huge podcast fan. Uh, like I've listened to yours. I've listened to a whole bunch of different podcasts all the time. And uh, I've kind of always wanted to do my own podcast. Uh, and when it kind of came time to like market the book, I was thinking that that would be a really great way to do that. Uh, just to go a little deeper on some of the stories with some of the artists kind of one-on-one and have it primarily be their voice on it. Um, you have a great podcast voice. I do not feel like I necessarily have a great podcast voice. So I like to let the artist do all the talking, really. Uh, and then I kind of edit it together at the end. Uh, so initially, I just wanted to do it through the through the release of the book. But it's been so fun to do. And it's just been really fascinating and interesting. And I've been getting a lot of great feedback. But I just, I'm just going to continue doing it until and see what happens with it. As long as people are interested in it and, and listening to it and, and participating in it, uh, I think I, I want to continue doing it. It's been a learning curve, but it's definitely been a lot of fun to, to get some of that out there too. Yeah, definitely. And and so do you have people from both the 80s and the 90s book on? Uh, initially, it was just the 90s folks. I'm kind of now reaching out to some of the 80s folks. And uh, I've got two in the can, as they say, yeah. uh, but uh, I have to edit. So yes, I'm definitely going to start bringing in some of the 80s folks uh, coming out soon too. And can you tell our listeners what the name of the podcast is and where they can find it? Uh, live through that and you can okay. get it uh, wherever you get your podcast. So so last question, uh, what's next for you? Is it the aughts? <laughs> uh, no, unfortunately, um, you know, the 80s and the 90s, was that was my music and that I have very distinct memories, you know, in the, in the 80s of just kind of being a teenager and, and finding out who you are. And then in the 90s, just kind of living your life and coming into terms as an, as an adult. Uh, and those were the times that I was really listening to music and music is so, some of those songs are so ingrained with those memories uh, and so strong. And I definitely just, I don't feel that connection in the two thousands necessarily. And I don't mean to sound like an, an old person, but <laughs> I just don't connect with that music in the same way. And I it just, a lot of it feels very, for lack of a better term, like, you know, focus group tested first before it's on the radio or before you hear it. And yeah, there were some there's some great ones like you know yeah yeah yes or the White Stripes or or the Strokes. You know, there was definitely some some of that some of the music that I connected to, but it was mostly in the early early aughts. 
when I'm doing these books that you put so much work into them and they are kind of personal, I definitely want to feel that connection to them. And I just don't feel that connection with that time period necessarily. Awesome. Well, listen, I, I loved the book. Uh, it was something totally different uh, from what I've been reading, which has been a bit heavier. And it was nice uh, as a creative person to flip through these beautiful portraits and then and then hear, you know, sometimes funny, sometimes interesting, sometimes, you know, sad stories from these artists that we all listen to. So uh, thank you for joining us and good luck with the book. Yeah, thank you for having me, Steve. If you would like to buy this book, please go to allmusicbooks.com and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our Deep Dive podcasts there as well and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. I'd also like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. You can check him out at fullsound.com. Finally, big ups to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout the podcasts. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all of the major streaming services. Please support local and independent writers and musicians. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an allmusicbooks.com podcast, and now a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.